Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, here's today's question for this podcast. Are humans meant to be monogamous? No. Well, thanks for listening. This has been Stuff Mom Never Told You. Send us an email <laughs> if you've got any thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Just kidding. Okay, I guess we got to... We should probably discuss how, how we came to that conclusion. But and how I reached that pitch-perfect note. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, glass is breaking everywhere, Kristen. I know. I, I feel kind of bad. Well, maybe we can auto-tune it later. Subjecting ears to that. But let's get down to business, Molly. Yes, the answer is no. <laughs> And to, to start our examination of human monogamy, we started with all the animals. We went first to the wild kingdom. Yes. Because, you know, I mean, what, let's learn from, from other creatures how to do things. They seem to, they seem to not have the, uh, the fights, the drawn out divorces that we humans do. Maybe yeah, they're onto they can, something. They can share a nest. I mean, and that's a small space. I know. And get along. It's like a studio in New York. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, before we had things like uh, DNA testing that we could do on animals, we used to think that a lot of different kinds of animals were monogamous, such as swans. Oh, birds. All birds. Yeah, lots of birds. They were really held up as the standards of monogamy in the animal kingdom. But once we got this DNA testing, we learned that these birds are flying away from the nest for a little hanky-panky, if you will. Especially the ladybirds. Yes, there have even been studies done where they gave the male birds vasectomies. Some of the male mm-hmm. birds vasectomies. To, c- and, c- to c- control the population. Girl. Right, to control the population. Not just for cruelty. And they've nested up with their ladybirds. So you got you got your female bird and then your male bird with a vasectomy. And lo and behold... <laughs> The females keep having babies. Yeah, she's somehow magically laying some eggs. And so the researchers went, huh, something's going on. So now that we've started doing all of this DNA research in these animal populations, come to find out animals are way less monogamous than we used to think. And there is a huge distinction between social monogamy and sexual monogamy. A lot of animals will pair up in quote unquote pair bonds, such as, you know, kind of like the way humans do. We form pair bonds, Mm -hmm. but while they might hang out a lot together and raise children together and and raise children, exactly. The children may not all belong to the male bird. Yeah. And that's where the DNA testing comes in. They come in and they test these, these baby birds and find out that maybe 30% of the, of the kids, however many, you know, kids these birds are raising don't belong to the father who has settled Mm -hmm. down with this woman. And it kind of makes me wonder if those um, TV shows that are on during the daytime that I only see when I'm sick, Kristen, like the the Maury's and the Jerry Springer's where they do the paternity testing. I wonder if it'll become more widespread because now it's like we're DNA testing every bird to see who its father is. I wonder what would happen if we did the same to humans. I don't even know if I'd want to know the results of that. And I don't think we do. I think maybe in our, in our, conscious places, we know that humans might be stepping out as much as these birds. But there are still a couple of monogamous examples in 
the animal kingdom. A lot of times we hear about prairie voles. Mm -hmm. They are known for their monogamy. Apparently when a little boy prairie vole and a little girl prairie prairie vole meet up, they will make prairie vole love for for days. Yeah. For hours and hours and hours on end. And And that's all it takes for them to be in love forever. Forever. And we are using these terms lightly. I know that we were anthropomorphizing these Mm -hmm. prairie voles, but still they're, they're studied specifically because of their monogamous habits. And scientists have compared their habits to a cousin of theirs called the meadow vole, Mm -hmm. who is far more promiscuous than the he's, prairie vole. He's the Don Draper of voles. Yes, the Don Draper of voles. Excellent. And they've compared uh, their brain structures and found that prairie voles have far more vasopressin receptors in their brains. And vasopressin is associated with pair bonding and feeling of attachment and rom- romantic attachment, I should say. And scientists went in and stimulated vasopressin receptor growth in meadow vole brains. And all of a sudden, these Don Drapers started settling down. Yeah. Like instantaneously, the scientists said. I mean, it was just, you know, as soon as that, that vasopressin kicked in, it was like, Hello, love of my life, who I will be with forever. And this is all linked up to the brain's reward system because we've gone over this territory many times in stuff I've never told you. But when you have sex with someone, there are certain chemicals that are released in your brain that stimulate your dopamine reward system, which is why noted anthropologist Helen Fisher compares love and attraction to cocaine addictions because it does set off this this really strong reaction in your brain. And the vasopressin receptors are associated with that. So it's possible, I mean, this is only one aspect of the question, are humans meant to be monogamous? It's possible that some humans just don't have that brain wiring that allows them to be monogamous. But uh, for anyone out there contemplating an affair, I don't think brain chemistry is going to be a valid excuse should your partner not want not be wanting you to have an affair? Sort of those prominent ideas about monogamy today from an academic perspective is that it's more of a cultural construct rather than a biological imperative. Scientists have even gone back and studied Lucy, the famous Australopithecus hominid, to try to trace back monogamy in human societies. And while originally they used to think that monogamy went Way, way back, you know, this pair bonding was happening. So of course we were, we were shacking up with just one other hominid. But indeed, no, new, newer studies show that when they compare the sizes of male and female hominids, the, the difference in sizes indicate that the men were certainly not monogamous. And how do they know that? It's because if the man is substantially larger than the woman, they figure that is not a monogamous society because the man has to be strong enough to fight off other predators who might be after his lady and his lady might be in, interested in these. So the men uh, are are bigger so that they can uh, save their save their women. And when you're reading all of this research, Molly, I, I don't know about you, but I have yet to come across. One study concluding that absolutely, you know, like monogamy is something that humans are born with. We talked about on the podcast, um, do men and women cheat for different reasons? Cheating and adultery and infidelity, all those <laughs> different words for the same thing, goes back 
eons in human history. We've always had a wandering eye for someone else. Now, this is also, again, where the important distinction comes up between social monogamy and sexual monogamy. Seems like we have, uh, we've definitely smashed the two together in human culture. We shack up with someone. And so socially, we want the, the child rearing support. We keep house together. We get all these social benefits from being monogamous with someone else. But at the same time, it's really hard for a lot of people to be sexually monogamous for the long haul. So that's that's sort of what those birds were doing. They would pick their one bird friend and they would maintain social monogamy, raising those children, you know, protecting the nest, etc. But sexual monogamy was up for debate. And what we found were a lot of articles in which cu- human couples were trying to negotiate this own distinction between the two for themselves and maybe realizing that requiring absolute monogamy from a partner isn't the most realistic way to go. Right. Uh, Chris Ryan, who wrote Sex at Dawn, has been a big proponent of this idea, A, that monogamy isn't really the natural human way. And he is a fan of more of this, quote unquote, new monogamy. And then um, recently in July, there was an article written by Tammy Nelson, who is a relationship psychologist, and she outlined different couples' process of establishing these new monogamous types of relationships. All these couples were married, and in some cases, one or the other person had cheated. and Sexually. Uh, sexually, yeah. They, they still they wanted to keep the relationship intact, if at all possible. Yeah, I think we need to clarify here between this uh, new monogamy and something like polyamory. Polyamory is the belief that you can emotionally, lo- emotionally love more than one person. And when we're talking about sexual monogamy, we're talking strictly about the physical act. And what these couples in uh, Nelson's article found was that if it was just sex, if there was no emotion tied to it, they could live with it. They would still maintain that social monogamy, having the emotional support and fidelity of a partner, but they didn't require the sexual support and absolute fidelity of a partner. Right. So with this concept of new monogamy, it's more thinking of monogamy in terms of strictly the social and establishing kind of a a, a monogamy contract with the other person. Obviously, different people and different couples will have different boundaries. Some people could not imagine their uh, their partner being sexually unfaithful to them and then being able to carry out a day to day social relationship with them. Some people are fine with it. You know, mm-hmm. some of these new monogamous couples have, both of them have uh, a lover and yet they still carry on a household together. And in our mononormative, yes, it's a new word that I learned this week, mononormative society where obviously monogamy is upheld as the cultural ideal. This seems like a pretty radical idea. Well, let's talk specifically about some of the couples that were presented in Nelson's article, because that might help some people understand. She talks about one couple she sees who are in their 50s. They both got married. I mean, they got married to each other when they were very young. Uh, they were, you know, each other's high school sweethearts. They'd never been with anyone else. And they both, you know, had that itch to explore, but they didn't want to break up the marriage. You know, they'd raised kids together. They had invested and made this life together. And they didn't want to destroy that. It was solely a physical thing. And they came to the realization that, you know, this marriage is never going to fall apart. No matter, you know, who else I have sex with, at the end of the day, I'm going to want to come home to this person. So I give this other person permission to explore 
that physical side of themselves. But I think with this couple, they were only allowed to have sex with someone else if they were traveling. Mm -hmm. And then when they came home, they had to disclose the little sexual interlude with the husband or wife. It seems, you know, that honesty and upfront communication is essential. And a lot of confidence in the strength of that social monogamy. Well, one rule that another couple had that I thought was kind of interesting was that um, if if one of the partners had sex with someone else, it could only have sex with someone else once. And that they thought that that was sort of the way that they could prevent that emotional bond from being formed. Because, again, it's not about falling in love with multiple people, um, which, you know, can sometimes be okay if you've got a polyamorous situation or an open marriage. It's strictly about what you're doing with your lady parts and your male parts. Right. It's kind of satisfying those chemical, quote unquote, needs inside of you. And again, Molly and I aren't sitting here advocating the new monogamy, saying that this is how it should be. But Nelson was making the point that, you know, we live longer than ever before. Couples, when couples say, I do, it's for longer than ever before. So maybe it's time for us to broaden our definition of monogamy and maybe take a cue from the animal kingdom, all of those birds that are happily socially monogamous, whereas uh, might not be hanging out the same chickadee every night. Well, you know, we've, I think we've talked before on this podcast a few times about how you can expect too much from one person. The new ideal that we've been raised with, thanks to movies and songs and all this, is that one person is going to be your everything. It's going to fulfill you sexually, emotionally, give you children and take out the garbage. And, uh, you know, we've talked about, is that too much to expect from marriage? Marriage used to be a financial contract between two people, um, or you used to get married because, you know, you wanted to have kids, but now you don't have to necessarily get married to do that. So they're saying that these couples who do choose to, uh, undertake the ideal of marriage to participate in that system, want to maintain all the, you know, social trappings of it, but, you know, they, they don't put all that pressure on the one person. For example, another one of the couples from the Nelson article I thought was kind of interesting was this woman who, uh, had affairs. She was still in love with her husband, but she would have never divorced her husband over these affairs because she knew it would hurt his career because she, he worked at a very conservative law firm. So she was happy to maintain that facade of, you know, the the wife, the kids, and the white picket fence, as long as she and the husband had the uh, agreement about who could do what. Mm-hmm. And some people might argue that this idea of new monogamy is just threatening the very institution of marriage. What are we doing? This is going to be the downfall of families. But I will sit, play devil's advocate for a minute and point to the most recent survey statistics that show that between um, 15, around 15% of wives and 25% of husbands will sleep with someone who is not their spouse or have a full-blown affair at some point. And then you can pile up the divorce statistics on top of that. And I think that maybe... You know, maybe there is room for some people if, if it's right for the couple. Again, this is going to be on a, on a per couple basis, but maybe it's time for us to perhaps stop kidding ourselves about monogamy being this innate natural thing that we have. I mean, it sounds very romantic, but maybe it's not all that realistic. But then again, I mean, I know there are probably going to be people out there who think that people who are practicing new monogamy are trying to have their cake and eat it too. They get all the benefits of that great home life with the perfect spouse, and they get to have sex with whoever they want. 
as long as they figured out the rules, you know, with that person. And, and I think that, you know, that's, that's a valid point of view to have too, because, you know, jealousy can take over in ways that you didn't expect. And the key to all of these couples that Nelson worked with was acknowledging the fact that there might be jealousy, there might be conflict, but making that commitment to negotiate it with each other and figure out if it was, this was a system that worked for them. Mm -hmm. Because it, like she said, it isn't for everyone. So there you have it. Uh, as, as animals, humans are certainly not a monogamous species. We attempt it, but maybe, maybe we're confusing social and sexual monogamy. That's not a question that Molly and I can answer. And I don't think that that's a question that anyone can answer for, make a blanket answer for, because like we said at the beginning, different people have different brain structures that will determine how monogamous they might or might not be. So at this time, I think it's, it's uh, time to hear from you guys. Let us know your thoughts, momstuff at howstuffworks.com, or share your thoughts with everyone over on our Facebook page. And now we shall read some listener mail. This one is from Damon. It's about the Home Ec Podcast. And Damon writes, I am a 39-year-old man who grew up in Detroit, Michigan. I took home economics when I was in the 7th or 8th grade, and I can say it was one of the most valuable classes I ever took. I learned how to sew, and I learned a little bit of cooking. I didn't mind taking the class at the time. I had no clue that I would use the things I learned to help me survive in college. I had a roommate who had problems making TV dinners. While I was cooking full meals, I am married now and I cook 90% of what my wife and I eat. While I'm not making my own clothes, I don't have a problem if I get a hole or need to make minor adjustments. My wife and I both thank Home Economics and Mom, of course, for teaching me these skills. I think everyone, male and female, should be required to take this class. Well, I've got another home ec email here, and it is from Adora. And Adora writes, I went to co-ed Roman Catholic High School in Hong Kong that was originally built as an all-boys school. We did not have the facilities for home ec classes. Instead, we had design and technology, which is similar to shop class in the U.S. We made useless stuff, such as plastic letter openers. Doesn't sound too useless. Uh, in an average secondary school in Hong Kong, girls go to home ec classes while boys go to shop class. I was proud that we had shop class instead of home ec because I could already cook and knit at home and I'd rather learn how to use a drill. It comes in handy uh, or it came in handy later when I worked at a theater scene shop in college and built wood models for my architecture podcast. After listening to your podcast, though, I wish we had home ec, but I wouldn't give up shop class. Both home ec and shop class should be taught to both boys and girls. Every time I get food poisoning, it's from a friend's cooking rather than restaurant food. In 10th grade, we had to close theater very early due to undercooked chicken at the potluck. Oh, no. Over Christmas, I ate a pasta my friend prepared that got me very sick. She added the milk before adding the uncooked meat. The boiling point of milk is much lower than the temperature required for cooking meat. Oh my god, I had a fever of 39 degrees Celsius and threw up so much that a bit of my brain came out. Everyone has to eat. We know, we need to know how to prepare food safely. Oh, and by the way, Molly, this is, this is a little bit for you. Uh, Dora writes, I was buying a Molly bolt at Home Depot and thought about how Molly would probably love that. There's an awesome bolt with her name. It's the best bolt for hanging wall shelves on drywall. There you go. As soon as I got that email, I might have done a little Google image search for the Molly bolt. For the holidays, I'm buying someone a bag of Molly bolts. (laughs) Wonder who it is. So if you have an email, you can send it to us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. We would also love for you to take advantage of our Facebook page and share your thoughts there. You can also follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast.com. 
And lastly, you can head over to our blog during the week. It is Stuff Mom Never Told You at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?